0: thought-leading insights on data and analytics in the healthcare space. This is Healthcare Analytics Decoded, a podcast by Quantros. Okay, so let's dive in. So Dr. Schwartz, thanks again so much for taking the time to give us your perspective on the COVID-19 pandemic, what healthcare organizations are going through, what they can learn, and, and potentially what that means for Providers in the industry moving forward. Uh, Before we dive in, do you want to just give the audience a quick introduction of yourself and the Zero Card as an organization in terms of your uh, goals and and really what you guys are working on?
1: Sure, happy to do that. I'm a uh, physician who is trained in infectious diseases. I spent about a quarter of a century in practice. And then I was recruited to head up a uh, 375 doctor clinic uh, that's part of a large health system here in Northeast Oklahoma. I spent 10 years at that. And after I ended that career, I was asked by a friend of mine who was in the benefits business if I'd like to do some consulting for his company. And we realized at that time that There were so many problems in healthcare that were related to financing. I mean, the payment model seems to have driven everything and seems to have made a big, you know, really caused a great deal of the problems with healthcare being too expensive. We created a startup called the Zero Card. It's a digital health uh, company that connects self funded employers to providers that are willing to provide bundled services. And we get good rates from providers because we take all the complexity out of, out of healthcare financing. They send us an invoice, and we send them a payment. Everything is included in the bundle payment. The employers know what the price is ahead of time. It's generally up to 40% or more lower than what they typically pay under the PPO. And the incentive is that the employee or the covered member doesn't get any bills. That's where it got the name, the zero card. And uh, we, all, we do all that now in several cities and states around the country, and uh, our company is growing simply because it's such a simple, easy-to-understand model that takes insurance out of the mix for things that you can schedule, everyday-type healthcare needs, mm-hmm. everything from bunions to cardiac bypasses. If you can schedule it, we believe you can bundle it and put a price on it, so people know what it costs ahead of time. That, in a nutshell, is the zero card.
0: Awesome, yeah. I mean, clearly, you and I have talked a little bit about just the need to, you know, change the way healthcare functions in, a, in a, on a number of vectors, payment being one of them, of course. Talk a little bit. So clearly, your background in epidemiology arms you to really understand this COVID pandemic potentially in a way that maybe others don't. Uh, Talk a little bit at just high level about your perspective about COVID-19, what's going on, and kind of how that does or doesn't relate to other pandemics we've seen or other infectious diseases we've seen in the past.
1: This is a once century learning experience. It's the pandemic that everybody (laughs) thought Literally, everybody thought could happen, but nobody really planned to the point that millions of people around the globe would be sick, and it would spread in a way that we didn't anticipate. And here's the interesting part. It's very contagious, we know that, but the odd thing is that people can get the coronavirus and have little or no symptoms, and those people could be very effective transmitters, spreaders of the disease, some people never get any symptoms. The second thing is that even those people that get symptoms, they may be infectious to other people two, three days before they get sick. So they may feel perfectly well, yet spread the infection. And we know that it's efficient to the point where one people, one person is generally infecting between two and two and a half other people, often before they even know they have it. So mm. And then the third thing is there's no vaccine and the fourth thing is at the present time we don't have any effective treatment so when you look at it it's the perfect storm except for one thing that the mortality rate is probably pretty low if if this were had the mortality of an Ebola for example where you know one out of every 5 or 4 people might die of it it would be you know a historic catastrophe more than it will be now but it's amazing how quickly we're learning and how quickly we get ideas that you know bubble up to the top and then quickly get disband, uh, dispelled when we learn more about it i mean for example uh-huh. the hydrox hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin you know that bubbles kind of come back to earth
0: yes it is interesting it seems like very, you know in a good way there's a lot of people trying to figure out how to fight this illness In the interim of a vaccine, which we all know takes even in the short term many, many months, clearly everyone is trying to figure out if there are treatments that already exist or a combination of treatments that already exist that can either slow this down or help. You know, this week it seems like Pepsid is kind of the new hydroxychloroquine, if you will.
1: Well, I mean, is a perfect example. I was at the market actually this morning, and the pepsin supplies, you know, were just about depleted. I took a look at it because I was curious. I mean, the research, you know, the, the the observational research that was published talked about using, you know, intravenous pepsin but yet, you know, people are getting the over-the-counter pepsin tablets. Will it work? Who knows? Is there a reason I can think of? Probably not. But <laughs> you know, everybody is is truly grasping at straws and all kinds of remedies.
0: I did hear as well, I don't know if you heard this, that um, because female outcomes tend to be better than male outcomes for severe COVID cases, they have been thinking about treating, or maybe even in some practice, treating male patients with female hormones when they are exhibiting severe symptoms of the disease.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a monumental bad idea. (laughs) <laughs> without any kind of research. You know, the other interesting thing that we've learned, and what I'm, I find so remarkable is that I'm learning something like every three days that's different from what I thought. You know, we have, it, it's a bell-shaped curve. And in the middle of the bell at the high point, there are people that get mild to no symptoms. And that's what most people get. It's not the elderly that get it more often. It's 18 to 54 year olds, 55 year olds, middle of life that get the infection most commonly. But it's older people with pre existing conditions that tend to do worse with it and then get the lung complications or some of the other dreadful complications. And then some very young and healthy people get devastatingly ill and die with it. And what we're learning is there's probably a spectrum. At that far end of the bell-shaped curve, the elderly people, part of the problem may be the immune system can't react enough to fight the virus. And then at the other end, at the young people who get very sick, it may be an overactivity. The immune system cranks up so high and generates so many of these inflammatory proteins and cells that the inflammatory reaction is what actually damages the lungs. And that's why... That's why one of the drugs that's being tested, and actually uh, Tulsa, where I am right now, is one of the centers that's doing the uh, uh, randomized control trial of a drug that blocks interleukin six, which is one of those inflammatory markers that some people crank out much too abundantly during an infection. It's like, you know, you get a, uh, you get a small fire in your house and the fire department comes over with 20 high-powered hoses and knocks your whole house over to put out a (laughs) small fire would be the metaphor. What's really interesting about this, this inflammatory question is, is that why people get so sick? Is that the people in those high-risk categories like diabetes, hypertension, and some other things, those people tend to make an excess amount of one of these inflammatory proteins called IL-6. So there may be something here more than just the virus infection. And then another thing that's truly interesting that I haven't seen before is uh, one of the docs who works in an emergency room back east mentioned that they would have people come in with trauma, broken arms, and things like that. They would put them in the CT scanner and, you know, to look at the fracture or the trauma, and then find these opacities, these shadows in the lungs and find out that was a COVID-19 infection that patient didn't even know about. So, you know, to find what, what looks like a pneumonia from a virus without any symptoms is incredible. And the other thing that's really incredible is that the way it affects the lungs, they may uh, actually reduce your ability to absorb oxygen, but allow you to exhale all your carbon dioxide. And what a lot of people don't know is that your need to breathe is based on how much carbon dioxide is in your blood. That's why when you hold your breath and carbon dioxide builds up, that's what makes you gasp. It isn't running out of oxygen. So one of the things we see with COVID-19, there are people that get severely uh, low oxygen levels, yet they don't feel very short of breath with it. And that's really remarkable. So there are so many things that we're learning, but what we basically don't understand is the complete interaction between the virus and the human body and the immune system. You may have seen on the news yesterday, you know, young people coming in with massive strokes related to COVID-19. One of the things we know uh, that docs use to diagnose this infection with a severe form of it is that people develop a marker in the blood called D-dimer, which is characteristically found in the blood in high quantities when there are blood clots inside blood vessels. So there's something going on here with the blood clotting system also. There's really a lot to know. And what we're getting at is pieces of it, one at a time. The puzzle hasn't been integrated into one clearly understood disease.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, really, really helpful Shifting gears a little bit from the the nature of the virus itself to kind of what you have observed in terms of its impact on healthcare, what are some some trends you're seeing in terms of how healthcare organizations or how the industry writ large is adapting to this pandem- pandemic? What has, in your opinion, been good in the response and maybe not so good?
1: It's really caused us to come to grips with some of the things that we've done for a long time, for example, in primary care that really don't make very much sense, but we're driven by the payment model. You know, most of my friends in primary care right now have, you know, the only people in the office are crickets. Very few patients are coming in, yet patients continue to have needs. So Medicare, for example, said, you know, temporarily we'll allow Medicare patients to do telehealth, which is something that you know, was it uh, on Medicare's fee schedule? And all of a sudden now, people are telehealthing the doctor rather than going in. You know, before the COVID epidemic occurred, you know, you'd go to the doctor's office and sometimes the doc would say, you know, let's have you come back in two weeks and we'll talk about the results. Or you had a question, the doc made an appointment for you. All those things that involve just conversation really can take place over Zoom or Google Duo or FaceTime or whatever particular platform you and your doctor want to use, especially, you know, visits for counseling. You so know, the downside is that we're not going to find things like heart murmurs or enlarged spleens or lumps in the abdomen that we find with examination. And, uh, You know, there will there will be mistakes made, but I think by and large the benefits outweigh the risks if telehealth is carefully used. The second thing of interest is, you know, most hospitals say they're not seeing the usual number of heart attack, stroke patients, appendicitis. There must be a lot of people just staying home and and getting better by themselves, which sometimes happens, but it gives us a probably a clearer understanding of how self-limited diseases get better without intervention. Third thing is I do think people are going to be wary of going to the hospital for a while. I think folks may be more willing to go to ambulatory surgery centers, for example, where, you know, part of the building is not dedicated to taking care of coronavirus patients. I think this will also start to change the payment model because it really doesn't make sense to charge for every little piece, especially in a disease you're not familiar with. And finally, you know, the irony of of all this is we've got people now, because of the coronavirus, who have lost their jobs, lost their health insurance, and when they get the coronavirus, they can't pay for it, you know, for treatment, you know, until there's a full mandate that everything involved with it gets paid for. So, you know, people are getting a double and triple whammy from this epidemic, which is just truly unfortunate. We've set uh-huh. the stage now for someone to say, you know, I don't want to go to the doctor. I don't want to get a test done because I, I'm afraid I can't afford it. And they wind up being sick and possibly infecting other people. So this is no time to have a financial barrier between a person who is sick and either the provider or the test they need to have done.
0: Yep, makes a lot of sense. I heard a lot in there about changes in healthcare delivery for at least the near term. Which of those do you think carries over post-pandemic? So, you know, do you see telemedicine continuing? Do you see more and more procedures being done outside of the hospital? Do you see the consumer, the patient to physician relationship and the way people consume healthcare? care? We all knew that was kind of changing, but do you see this kind of expediting that? I think those would be maybe the three areas I'd be curious your take on.
1: Yeah, I do. Uh, I see several of those. The first is, you know, a lot of folks have not been able to see their primary care doctor and have not been able to connect in the way they want to. And you know, wind up going to urgent cares. I think this will fray to some degree the bonds that are already beginning to fray between uh, healthcare consumers and primary care docs in terms of the need to have a primary care doc. You know, so many people now can't see their primary care doc when they you know are sick, and will look for alternatives. This also brings up medicine on demand. You know. But people feel they want to see the doctor, especially with a problem like this. It isn't they're not gonna to wanna to wait two or three days. The second is I think it will promote migration of healthcare away from away from being hospital centric. You know, if you don't need to be in a hospital, maybe you can, you know, get the same level of treatment in a place that's dedicated to the particular problem you have rather than dedicated to, so to speak all healthcare problems like, you know, a big general hospital is. And then again, the third thing is, you know, if the government really mandates that all healthcare related to coronavirus needs to be free or have no responsibility to the patient, I think that's going to push people to think, why is this only important for coronavirus when you know, society in general will be better if people can access healthcare without a financial barrier. Those mm. are the big changes I see. Yep. And same and, and the fourth oh, is, let me just say the fourth is who are you going to believe <laughs> right now? I mean, right now we have information about coronavirus. In the same day you hear You know, one politician say, we got it under control. You can get whatever you want. Another politician say, we're dying out here. Send masks. We can't do tests. I mean, who are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe about the science when you hear different things from different people? Is the, you know, is the on the television that you listen to going to inform all your decisions about your health care? Is it going to be your doctor? Where are you getting your information from? And is it a trustworthy source? It makes a tremendous difference in healthcare.
0: That second, that last part is it rings really true with me. You know, I think one of the things that Quantros, in partnership with many organizations like yourselves, has tried to do, um, like you guys are, is provide objective transparency to consumers. You know, in in a world where consumers seem very confused about historically I've always gotten referrals from my provider but is that just because my provider knows that other physician or is that other physician really a high quality physician you know or I've been referred to a hospital is that just because my provider practices my primary care physician practices there or is affiliated there or is that because you know it's the best place for me to go for the treatment I need so I, I totally agree with you in this age of, lots of information. I think consumers are very confused around when I need to make a healthcare choice, where do I go to get the most objective, complete information to inform that choice?
1: Let me me give you a real quick anecdote. So I called a friend of mine who's interested in quality. She's an internal medicine physician in the Southeast. And we were talking about use of Quantros and other quality metrics. And, you know, I said, how do you decide where to send somebody for spinal surgery? And she said, well, I got a pretty good feeling for who's good and who's not. You know, I used this doctor and she named the doctor or this doctor and she named another one and she told me the hospitals. And I told her, you know, when I look at quality, I want to know three things. I want to know the name of the surgeon who's doing the operation. I want to know the hospital because pre- and post-op care, when the surgeon isn't there, makes a huge difference. But particularly, I want to know exactly how good the hospital and surgeon are are for a particular surgery. So we ran the numbers in Quantros, and I showed it to her, and she was flabbergasted that her go-to surgeon was not very highly scored, and that there were better choices to make. So your point is well taken that Physicians may be making choices that are based on economics, you know, what health system do they work for, who's paying their salary, may not be taking into account the economic impact of the patient, and may not be aware of the quality scores. One of the companies that I consult with had a patient that came, a member that came back and required a big spinal surgery in a major metropolitan area uh, in the Northeast and had a bad outcome. And nobody could believe it because this hospital is typically in the top five or top ten of everybody's best hospitals list. But we looked at the exact operation. Unfortunately, it was one of those ones that's publicly reported that Quantros had the data for. And this five-star hospital was dreadful at this particular operation by the particular surgeon that operated. And to me, that was a wake-up call. That reputation is one thing, but as we say at the zero card, we'll trust grandma, but everyone else must bring data.
0: <laughs> I like that. So clearly hospitals are going to have to, you know, hospitals are run by very intelligent people and clearly they have incentives here. They're going to have to adapt as well. And, and I think many of them have started that process already. Maybe this pandemic and this situation just expedites that. What types of trends do you see in terms of how, how the, the health care system, and in particular hospitals, are going to have to adapt in order to survive? Is it things like buying more physicians, owning an ASC, providing primary care themselves? What are, what are some of those things that you think hospitals will have to do in order to continue to operate and, and, and thrive? Or, do, or does the term hospital change entirely?
1: The sleeping giant right now is employer-funded health care by employers that are self-funded. In other words, pay mm-hmm. their own health care bills through a carrier. When I was a practicing physician and somebody came in with a Blue Cross card, I thought Blue Cross card paid the bills because that's where the check came from. What I didn't know is that more than half the people in this country obtain their health care payment through a self-funded company. Now, the self-funded companies don't pay the most amount of money, but they cover the most number of people. And these self-funded companies uh, under ERISA plans have a tremendous amount of flexibility. They aren't bound to a Blue Cross policy. They aren't bound to a Cigna policy. They can write their own plan documents, you know, as long as they fit federal guidelines and ACA guidelines and so forth. So a self-funded company can say, you know what? I want to build incentives that, that I know that hospital A in my town does better back surgery. So I'm going to cut out the deductible or reduce the co-pays if somebody goes and gets their back surgery at hospital A and not B. Suddenly, the hospitals are now competing on quality, which is really what you want it to be. And if consumers have and payers have, employer payers have a full transparent window into how good is a particular service and how much does it cost, they will start making entirely different decisions based on giving incentives to covered members. And to me, that becomes a really good situation where people aren't asking their next door neighbor or their brother-in-law's uh you know, brother-in-law's wife, who's a pharmacist, thought who's the best doctor in town for a particular problem. Competing on quality and cost will have a huge transformative effect. And as I said, the sleeping giant are self-funded companies that have the ability to build these things into their plans to make their covered members or help their covered members make better healthcare decisions.
0: Do you think hospitals are going to have to further adapt their approach to be patient centric. And what I mean by that is clearly, you know, many of us in the industry have been talking about social determinants and and equity of care for a long time. I think this, the coverage of this pandemic has highlighted the disparity in certain populations in terms of their mortality rates or, you know, whatever. Do you think that this is gonna necessitate that hospitals really start to treat those populations differently to ensure optimal outcomes
1: in the sense that the social determinants of health you know really have a bit bigger influence on your care. you know i've had the experience of in practice of prescribing a medication and having a patient come back and them being no better only to find out indirectly that they never took the medicine because they couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. It's so remarkable how you know access to physicians, transportation, nutrition, safety, <clears throat> and the ability to pay for healthcare makes such a huge difference. You look at diabetes, folks with diabetes who are dependent on insulin and don't have insurance are at extremely high risk for all manner of complications because they aren't taking the one thing that can save their life. <clears throat> I mean, why should insulin insulin be so expensive when people's lives depend on it? When you make a life-saving drug inaccessible because of economics, you're basically saying, pay me or die. That's a bad situation.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I- I'm curious to see if if hospitals play more of a role in recognizing or or physicians themselves have to play more of a role in recognizing that if we don't solve the problem you were just talking about we are always going to be treating acute patients we're not going to get patients any further along on the wellness spectrum if you will if we can't if they can't afford their medications if we can't give them a way to adhere to their Treatment regimen. You know, um, we're always going to be in an acute situation. It's never going to be a population health management situation.
1: You know, the some of the quality metrics for hospitals depend on hospitals reducing the number of people who are admitted to the hospital after within days of discharge. That's a uh-huh. that's a big metric now. And you know, in the program I worked at. Uh, when I was with the health system, we participated in the Comprehensive Mary Care Initiative, which was a a Medicare innovation project to help reduce costs. And one of the ways was to keep people from coming back in the hospital. So what we determined was that when people went home from the hospital, generally were seeing their doctor. They couldn't get in to see their doctor until 10 to 14 days after they were discharged from the hospital. And what we found out is that Patients that came back to the hospital came back within seven days. So they were coming back before they were even seen by their doctor. That Uh. tells you a big story that why were we allowing them to not get seen, you know, in a time frame to intervene and and obviate having to come back to the hospital? Those are things you don't look at unless you study them. Someone gives you either an incentive or a punishment if you don't make it better. Look at it and you realize this is all interconnected. So you send somebody home and you tell them to change their dressings and they can't afford their dressings, they come back to the hospital with a wound infection. These are the things that social determinants make a really big difference. Somebody can't get to the doctor's office after surgery because they don't have transportation. They can't eat well. A person with diabetes can't afford their insulin after surgery. They pop back in the hospital. It's uh, Social determinants are incredibly important, and I do foresee that hospitals, especially community uh, uh, not-for-profit hospitals that you know have, a, have to demonstrate community benefit, will have to step up and assure that patients have more than just health care When they leave the hospital, how that gets done, I'm not sure whether it'll be through, you know, punishment, so to speak, you know, fines or reductions in payment. I'm not sure, but I see that hospitals will have a bigger role in community health.
0: Awesome. Well, this has been a very insightful, thoughtful conversation. Um, Anything else you'd like to leave the audience with in terms of your perspective on? Where healthcare is going, how this pandemic maybe expedites some of that or changes any of that?
1: I do think a large number of people are going to be sensitized to to how social disparities make a really big difference. Right now we've and pandemic we've said, you know, stay at home and work at home if you possibly can. And information workers are basically doing that. But yet there's a stratum of physical workers that support the ability of information workers to stay at home, the transportation people, fire, safety, grocery stores, et cetera, et cetera. These are folks that tend to have more social determinant, uh, more adverse social determinants, and people who have lower incomes. So we're really seeing a, a division between those people who Worker in higher-paid jobs that are primarily around information, where they don't have to move things, do things, and folks with lower incomes, and that's why we're seeing, you know, death rates in frontline workers, first responders, and so forth, uh, who can't get everything that they need. Just unfortunate deaths that that point out that. Our society is not equal when it comes to health risks and health care, uh, you know, healthcare care opportunities. I think that's going to be, that's going to become much clearer as time goes on in this epidemic.
0: Yeah, I'm just starting to see some articles be written about, you know, I don't want to use the term caste system because clearly we're not that antiquated, but The idea that there are the workers who have the luxury to work from home, and in general, most of those workers have maintained a similar salary to what they were pre pandemic. That I think I read an article from the Wall Street Journal yesterday that said that was about 35% of the population. Then you have those essential workers, those people you mentioned, that's a pretty big portion, and then you Kind of had this other population. They broke it into two groups, but the unemployed, and then kind of they called this group the this other group the forgotten, which are clearly people in prisons, homeless, you know, shelters, those kinds of individuals um, who who really themselves don't dictate their conditions, their health, those kinds of things. So it will be really interesting to see if you were to look at those various populations that were called out in that article, how is this, both from a healthcare perspective and an economic perspective, differently impacting those those groups? And then what does that mean long-term, right? Because the short-term is a little easier to quantify, but what is the lasting impact for Mm. that first group? The lasting impact is generally probably pretty minimal, you know, they go back to work at some point and, and things kind of go back to normal. But for those other groups, you know, what does that actually look like? Um, so I think that'll be really interesting to to watch almost after the, the the wave of the pandemic passes.
1: I think, you know, when you say back to normal, I truly believe that it will be a new normal in many senses. It will be Mm -hmm. months, many weeks to months before we can actually stop social distancing, especially for, you know, people that are at higher risk until we understand what creates that risk and how to mitigate it other than, you know, using a six foot pole to keep people away. It's going to be very interesting. And I, you know, as the famous atomic scientist Niels Bohr said in about 1940-something, prediction is difficult, especially about the future.
0: <laughs> well, I think that's a good way to end. Um, thank you again so much for your time, Dr. Swartz. I, I thoroughly enjoyed your perspective. Um, I'm sure our listeners will will also really find a lot of value and, and nuggets of good information as they think about the path forward for them individually. Um, And we look forward to continuing the conversation with you in in future instances of, of the Quantros podcast and also some of the Quantros content.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks and have a great day.
1: You too. Stay safe and stay home.